You're listening to Big Table, a podcast about books and conversation, presented by Invisible Republic, Hattonbeard Press, and Dub Lab in Los Angeles. I'm your host, JC Gable. For the summer months, we've changed things up a bit. We're programming longer episodes about our own published books as we prime our book club model to grow the organization post-COVID. The only way to sustain our efforts is to move most of our customer base to said book club model. To support Big Table or Hat and Beard, join our book clubs. You can find out more about them at hatandbeard.com. This will fuel all our books, podcasts, exhibitions, and events. Thanks for listening. today's episode of Big Table, our 53rd, we have a long-form conversation between poets Mandy Kahn and Dana Joya. Both are masters of traditional lyrical forms, and both have new books out. Holy Doors, Mandy's third collection, is one of the first titles on our Hat and Beard Editions literary imprint. Meanwhile, Mr. Joya has published, collected, or translated dozens of books throughout his storied career, which includes a stint as the director of the NEA and Poet Laureate of California. Dana's most recent collection is Meet Me at the Lighthouse, published by Grey Wolf Press. Both are out now. I should note, Mandy and Dana are also natives of Los Angeles, and this episode is more freeform, with both poets reading their work in dialogue with one another and discussing their craft intimately. Here's Mandy Kahn in conversation with Dana Joya, discussing their new books and a whole lot more. Hello, Mandy. Uh, I don't see you very much these days, maybe once or twice a year. It's a pleasure to be with you. It's an absolute honor to be with you. I've been looking forward to today's conversation for quite a while. So thank you so much for having me. It's going to be fun. Both of us have new books uh, published you know, this year. I have my sixth book of poems from Grey Wolf Press called Meet Me at the Lighthouse. And you have a slim volume of modern poetry yourself. Yes, this is my third collection. It's called Holy Doors, and it's out from Hat and Beard Editions. Well, good. I think each of us are going to just talk a little bit about our book and uh, read a poem or two. Meet Me at the Lighthouse is my sixth book, but in a way it's really my fifth because I had a selected poems in the middle. And it wasn't until I published the book, at, just after I turned, God help me, 72 years old, I realized that I had published a book in my 30s, in my 40s, in my 50s, in my 60s, and my 70s. They were timed out at a, at a generous uh, uh, interval. Uh, and, and that's good with me because I always admired poets like Philip Larkin and my teacher, Elizabeth Bishop, you know, who really only published a book about every 10 years. And uh, it gives you a chance to reflect on what you're writing and what you're putting in. Uh, let me give you a sample about this book. And, uh, and I'll start with the title poem, which is also the first poem. It's about going to this great, shabby, 
but nonetheless wonderful jazz club that's in Hermosa Beach, California, called The Lighthouse. And The Lighthouse is very famous in American jazz. It's where West Coast jazz uh, greatly happened. And, so, you know, the really famous people, uh, uh, you know, they are Jerry Mulligan, Cannonball Adderley, Stan Getz, Art Pepper, Chet Baker. They were regulars at The Lighthouse. Uh, it also had a very famous house band called The Lighthouse All-Stars. And so... This poem sets, I think, the themes of the book up. The first one is Los Angeles. Meet me at the lighthouse. Meet me at the lighthouse in Hermosa Beach, that shabby nightclub on its foggy pier. Let's aim for the summer of 71, when all our friends were young and immortal. I'll pick up the cover charge find us a table, and order a round of their watery drinks. Let's savor the smoke of that sinister century, perfume of tobacco in the foggy night air. This crowd will be quiet, only ghosts at the bar, so you, old friend, won't feel out of place. You need a night out from that dim subdivision. Tell Dr. Death... You'll be home before dawn. The club has booked the best talent in Tartarus, Jerry, Cannonball, Hampton, and Stan, with Chet and Art, those gorgeous greenhorns, the swinging masters of our West Coast soul. Let the all-stars shine from that Jerry-built stage. Let their high notes shimmer Above the cold waves, time and the tide are counting the beats. Death, the collector, is keeping the tab. That is a gorgeous poem, and I just want the listeners to know that you have it memorized, and watching you read it, sometimes with your eyes open, sometimes with your eyes closed, looking right at the microphone is just stunning to see. I love that you memorize your poems. You're such a good reader and you're such a good performer. And I wish everyone out there could see what I just saw. Uh, Mandy Kahn, in, in case you haven't realized, <laughs> is my paid publicist. Uh, well, I write my poems by sort of, sort of speaking to myself often just walking around talking to myself. And then when I think I get it right, I write, you know, the lines down. And so I want my poems to be sound. I think of poetry as words raised to the level of music. And uh, if I can't remember them, they're not very good. So let me, I'm going to read uh, one other poem. And this is another poem that sets the tone about it. And I'll just say something. And if you're under 60, you won't understand what I'm saying. If you're <laughs> over 60, you'll know exactly what I'm saying. I wake up every morning and find myself on an alien planet. Uh, there's all these things that are going on that uh, my my sons and all their friends uh, you know, are doing, which I don't even understand. Uh, and I sort of go along with this sense that you know, somehow the world I belong to has vanished. So this poem uses the metaphor of the British Empire. When I was a kid, you look at a map and 
one quarter of the world was colored rose for the British Empire. Now it's, you know, the British Empire is probably a little larger than the, than the state of Utah. And so it's just about thinking back on all of these, you know, kind of exotic adventures and realizing that in the past. I have one allusion, which is, you probably know from television, when Queen Victoria's beloved husband, Prince Albert, died, she went into mourning for the rest of her life, and she only dressed in black. Map of the Lost Empire. Live long enough, and you become a Victorian. Part of you always dressed in black, like the Empress of India, mourning your lost ones in Tennysonian cadences. You study the map of your once vast empire with its carefully engraved borders of vanished nations, remembering the wide harbors and flag-filled capitals. The sun never sets on your nostalgia. What expeditions, what discoveries there were, circling the volcano's sulfurous perimeter, trekking the glacier, naming a new orchid amid a chorus of blue frogs. Now the volcano, long dormant, has a small cafe reached by a comfortable funicular. The cities you revisit are populated by strangers, dressed like American teenagers. Such humiliating surrenders and abandonments. Who is the ludicrous imposter in the mirror? Where are the regiments to hold back the years? What fortress left to make a stand? Beautiful. <laughs> Just beautiful. Well, Mandy, tell us about your book. So Holy Doors is uh, largely a book of spiritual poems. It's about negotiating sort of between the spiritual and the physical, the seen and the unseen. I'm Every day of my life begins with my spiritual practice, which I love, my meditation practice. And then I head into my day um, having just touched the sort of ethers, and then I step into the heaviness of the body and the world. And so it is largely about that sort of negotiating of the various uh, states of being. I'm going to start with this poem. I do not fear death, yet go on living. I do not fear death, yet go on living. I know choirs wait for me to finish, wait to paint this clear air with their singing, wait in gauzy figures just past seeing. I know what will greet me is more vibrant than a field of poppies in the morning, widening their petals for the daylight. I know what is waiting past my seeing, know its luster, still I go on living. Chopping, boiling, eating, scrubbing, sweeping, writing sonnet seen by just my ceiling, stacking up old bills, paying, not paying, then a bath, a walk, and it is evening. Choirs wait to stir the air with feeling. Angels wait to steer me towards a drawbridge, 
made of lighted crystal I keep living. I love the rhymes in that poem. I love the way that the, the lines are all <laughs> landed in kind of a musical uh, web. Your ear gets you know caught in. Thank you. Thank you. I wanted to read this poem next because um, it's got the themes of the book in it, but it's also a Los Angeles poem. So I grew up here in LA and my stepfather loved the horse races and would always take my sisters and I uh, to the races and give us each a little bit of money to bet with. And I learned quite a lot about myself um, by which horses I chose to bet on and how they did. So this poem begins with that, those racetracks that were in the LA of my youth that are not around anymore. A long shot in spring. This one's for my stepdad, Norm, who started me betting the long shots in spring. We dressed for the races back then. I wore curls and a skirt with lace edging and black shoes that buckled and clacked and sometimes pink tights and a hat. I loved betting long shots, was happy with losing some contests. Then my 20 to one would come in and I'd spread out my winnings, stacking and fanning my loot, unfolding the dog ears and flattening creases until I knew each bill by touch. I loved betting long shots in spring. I'd stand at the teller age six and collect what I'd earned. My sisters thought it was luck. There's more. I wasn't too timid to lose. I'm still not. Look at this odd long shot of a life. I live in perpetual spring. My hair is straight, uncombed, just like a girl's hair, though I am grown. And still I have a girl's clear-sightedness, unwavering will. The years haven't broken me, a thoroughbred bought by a farm. They've preserved me like an ether, an oil, girlhood stilled in its dreaming, its faith. What am I betting on now? World peace. Let them guffaw in the stands. Let all the chattering jockeys make jest in the stables. It's May in my rooms. Call it a thousand to one if you want. My dream that we will choose to live from love, that I will live to see that choice. Here's what I've learned. Sometimes your spring horse comes in whom no one else bet on. Your fire in the moonlight, your fairies call, your tall auspicious lady, your cherries in dew. Look at that child counting and folding the bills they said had come from luck, not luck or God or patience, no belief. There's a kind of odd music in your, your new poems, which is both formal and free at the same time. I mean, you're using rhyme. You're, you've got a steady beat, but the, the line moves around. You know, it's what the French call ver libre, you know, which is not free verse, but a, a line of unpredictable length that's anchored by rhyme. But you also use refrains, which is to say you have repeating lines which either works beautifully in a poem or if you have a bad line, every time it comes back, you just go, ouch, ouch. But I think it's really quite interesting what, you, what you're doing. You match a form to an idea that I think wouldn't work 
if you didn't add a kind of musical momentum to it. Thank you. Thank you for saying that. You know, I am a lover of form. As a child growing up, I loved formal poems. I memorized formal poems. You know, in high school when it was cool to read free verse and the beats, I loved formal poetry and memorized formal poetry. I was, it seemed like I was the only person I knew that liked that sort of thing. And as an adult, what I love is having the formal devices sort of baked into me so that I can lean into them or lean away from them as the poem requires. And I'm curious to hear how your process is. My process is not planned. I sit down, the poem arrives. Often it, it arrives in form or a version of form, but it will show me how soft or fixed the form is going to be as it sort of spins itself into shape. There is an editing process after that, but I can tell even from that first draft how formal it's going to be. We haven't talked about this before, but that's exactly my process or version of my process. Uh, People don't believe this because they say, oh, Dana, you're a formal poet which I am sometimes, but I also write in free verse. I like to have every possibility of language open to me. I don't want people to say you have to write it this way or that way. I uh, start writing. Something comes to me, and I feel that it's poetry. And it's usually what comes to you is the first line. I write it down, and then I ask, what is the shape the language wants? Is it going to be metered or free? Is it going to be rhymed or unrhymed? Is it going to have stanzas or is it going to run on? And I just let the language lead me uh, because I think that a poem is a collaboration. It's a collaboration between you and the language. And the language has controlling share. The, you know, the English language will only do what it wants to do at that moment. It's like riding a, a wave as a surfer. You can't just surf without, in a sense, doing it in cooperation with the ocean. And learning how to match your rhythm with the ocean's rhythm is fundamental to the skill. And so this is a poem. I, I stole my, my uh, title from Shakespeare, who, if you remember from Hamlet, when Hamlet's walking around pretending to be mad, uh, the minister Polonius comes up to him to make conversation. And he goes, what are you reading, prince? And he goes, words, words, words. Uh, God help us all. It is a poem about poetry. Words, words, words. It isn't just the words, though we have made a science of them. Eloquence excels in polishing the sentiments we need no longer say. Words are the cards, but not why the game is played. It isn't just the rhyme, though we surmise the accidental insights of conjunction, the superstitious chanting we despise, but can't forget, shamed by our childish pleasure and surprise. It isn't just the pain we hope to end. Old wounds still seep their blood between the lines. The truest words subvert what we intend. They bring no ease. The cost is always more than we can spend. 
It is the luck to fail at what we started of letting language use us as a vessel swept on a course we never could have charted to hope that once the angel came, possessed us, and departed. It tells us so much in the language and in its form, how it uses form, how it breaks from form at times. I heard 10-beat lines. I heard a couple of 11-beat lines as well in there. It's a beautiful poem, and it's a beautifully teachable poem for any teachers out there. I have a short poem about writing that probably um, would fit perfectly here. So this poem is called Writing. I stop meditating, start a poem, step from one light haze, enter another, all creation swirling, pausing, forming. And I choose to heed, I feel its meaning, feel its need to be and stand up quickly, stagger to my desk full of a something not completely known, but brimming, crowning, and midwife that body into being. Does the baby choose its mother growing? Did the mother choose the child she's holding? Are we paired like partners for group dancing? Fresh and with a will I can feel coming into my own arms arrives this something. What is it that draws you to form? Because especially in Los Angeles, most uh, Angelino poets, and they write, you know, in all kinds of shapes, but they don't tend to write much in form unless they're doing hip hop, uh, you know, or, you know, you know, poetry where they're, you know, they're basically doing a, 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 an auditory performance poetry where the rhymes are just part of the energy, which I love. I, you know, I, I've, I, I love that as a poetic mode, but otherwise people mostly work in free verse. I love form because I believe that it is an armor that helps an idea and a sentiment to travel through time. There are many words spoken in this world, but there is something about form that helps something to stay. It's a kind of chiseling it into stone, but the truth is it seems to outlast stone. When people are in their in their most uh, challenging moments, what comes to them? What comforts them? What uplifts them? What saves them? It is lines in verse, the labor of taking a whole understanding and boiling it down to 12 lines that I can remember or somebody can remember, to me, that's worth a whole lifetime of effort. And that's why I show up sort of quietly, invisibly to practice form day in and day out. And and it's those unseen hours, I think, that has taken form from what it was earlier in my life, something that I practiced at to where it's so embedded in me that now I feel like the poem flows through the tube of form almost. Certainly there's a, a an editing process. I generally do like maybe t- 10 drafts of a poem, but its first shape comes through almost in one sort of flush. And that's because I have really breathed 
worked, labored, loved form all these years? Well, you know, uh, I'm going to take us what might seem like off subject, but I, it's, I want to connect back to it. Last night, I was at a very formal, uh, elegant dinner party hosted by these two arts philanthropists. There was a world-famous composer, a world-famous conductor, and they were talking, and they were talking about Stravinsky and, you know, famous, you know, Schoenberg and serious music. And then suddenly we uh, mentioned Leon Russell as a piano player, you know, one of the great studio musicians. And people started talking about pop music, and about pop music of L.A. And the whole emotional tenor of the conversation began changing. And then one person began talking about a favorite song and began to cry. And I realized that but if you were raised as I was in Los Angeles, it's part of your sensibility. And I think as a poet, you know, people, you know, say, well, you know, you are, you know, very, very smart guy, Joya, you know, can't stand you, but you're very smart. Uh, and so that's why you write rhyme and meter because it's very intellectual. No, it's not. I write it because I, I'm from L.A. I, you know, I grew up singing pop songs, hearing pop songs, and I wanted to take my poems and and raise them to the sort of of musical power, the mnemonic power that that, that great songs had. And so, uh, you know, my uh, interest in form is not highbrow; it's lowbrow, and I think that's what. What makes it interesting, you know, uh, because I don't really want to, you know, put on, you know, papal vestments and sit with a quilled pen, you know, and, and write something. I want to croon it. You know, I want you to hear it. And I want somebody who's not a poet, who didn't go to grad school or anything else to hear it and go, yeah, that's my life, too. I was asked recently if I ever depart from the absolute truth in a poem about my life. And the answer is, sometimes I have to change the word if the word that is the most accurate has the wrong number of syllables in it. Because for me, and I think for you too, meter is king. Meter and sound, and especially repeated sound. Um, So this is another true story. It's another story that happened right here in Los Angeles. I was... um, I was at my home in Hollywood and I woke up in the middle of the night with a terrible pain and um, I thought I was in the last moments of my life. This day, this is one I thought I'd never write about the night I thought I'd die. The ambulance came quickly, two firemen rolled a gurney The wild pain in my gut was its own kind of journey. The ambulance was moving. I was inside it. Night scrolled through dark windows. It seemed that I might die. And I felt ready. Had I been given a choice, I would have stayed here, written ten more volumes, first the one you're holding. There was no choosing. I told Boris he was there to tell you all had been forgiven. I grasped at nothing. My final thoughts were loving, grateful for the things that I had finished. 
they both felt easy to stay like a bird on a branch, perching, trilling, with all flight held within it, or to go flying. Yes, I would have chosen you and living, even knowing heaven. This day was given. Mandy Kahn, it was a pleasure as always to be in your company. Dana Joya, this was a thrill beyond my ability to describe and such an honor. Thank you. Holy Doors by Mandy Kahn is out now on Hat and Beard Editions in hardcover. And Meet Me at the Lighthouse by Dana Joya, published by Grey Wolf Press, is out now in paperback. Psalm of the Heights You don't fall in love with Los Angeles until you've seen it from a distance after dark. Up in the heights of the Hollywood Hills, you can mute the sounds and find perspective. The pulsing anger of the traffic dissipates and and our swank, unmanageable metropolis dissolves with all its signage and its sewage until only the radiance remains. That's when the city of angels appears, silent and weightless as a dancer's dream. The boulevards unfold in brilliant lines. The freeways flow like shining rivers. The moving lights stretch into vast and secret shapes, invisible at street level. At the horizon, the city rises into sky, our demi-galaxy, brighter than the zodiac. Surely our destinies are written in this zodiac, whose courses and conjunctions govern us. Look down and name our starry constellations, Wilshire, Olympic, Santa Monica, In speeding comets or sleek thunderbirds, we traveled the twelve houses of the heavens, ascending Crenshaw, sunset, or imperial, locked in our private worlds of lust or laughter. Who will cast the charts of our radiant sorrow or trace the secret transits of our joy? The traffic shimmers from its fixed trajectories, dense and indifferent as nebulae. Though you resist its gaudy spectacle, you can't escape the city's sortilege. Move away if you wish to the White Sierras or huddle in the smoky canyons of Manhattan. You'll miss the juvenescent rapture of L.A., where ecstasy cohabits with despair, lascivious and fitful as a pair of lovers. Let someone else play grown-up. Here, 
The soul sings like a car radio, and no one asks your age, because we're all immortal. Inhale the spices of the midnight air, drifting from Thai town and little Armenia, here on the hilltop, the city whispers to you, come down and play in the traffic. Merge into the moving lights, our myriad, the luminous multitudes that surround you. Join their fiery orbit. Shine with us tonight. Where else can you become a star? To support Big Table, go to invisiblerepublic.org and click on the Big Table link. There you will find many ways to financially support this podcast. And thanks in advance. Big Table is produced and presented by Hat and Beard Press and Dub Lab in Los Angeles and is written and edited by yours truly, J.C. Gable. Our sound designer and editor is Matea Bain. Our engineer is Jacob Ross. Special thanks to Alejandro Ale Cohen, and Mark Frosty McNeil from Dub Lab for early encouragement and support. Big Table is also funded in part by Invisible Republic, a nonprofit arts organization based in Chicago, Los Angeles, and New York. You can find out more about their programming and publications at invisiblerepublic.org. Thanks again for listening.